Meshi. My name is Stephanie, and one of my favorite foods is Spam. Hi, I'm Keno, and one of my favorite foods is Samyang <laughs> Korean fire noodle. Hi, I'm Mizuki, and I think one of my guilty pleasure foods is actually McDonald's. <laughs> wow! Because my mom won't let me have it, but I sometimes sneak away and eat McDonald's. Today's episode is going to be about fusion food and Asian food because we're Asian. I mean, that sounds obvious, but there's like other types of fusion food and like other conversations about Americanized types of European food. And like, I just don't think that I'm personally equipped to speak to that. I think a lot of the conversation and debate about food comes down to like how we define certain words used to describe food. So like fusion or like authentic, these are all words that people ascribe different meanings to. And based on like how they define those terms, judge food or like hold food to those specific standards. And I think it's really interesting to read about like how different people view food and like how different people regard food because food is like really personal and everyone eats. It becomes like a pretty good microcosm of how race and like culture plays into like overall identity. So I think a lot of this will be different terms used to describe food and like how that can impact our understanding of it or how we judge it or value it. But I want to take a detour to talk about spam because I love spam. Do you love spam? I have not had spam enough to have an opinion on spam, but my initial reaction was not positive. <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't really like this. <laughs> okay. But I think it just depends on like what food it's in. Yeah, I agree. I think my love or hatred of spam is very conditional. It also depends on whether I'm in Hawaii or not, <laughs> and I'm eating it on a beach. Why do you like spam? Because it's tasty. <laughs> and if you don't like spam, it's because you're both racist and classist. And I will explain to you why. For people who don't know what spam is, and I think there might be some people out there like who genuinely don't know, spam is like a canned meat product. It comes in like a rectangular metal can. And you peel off the top of the lid and it's like luncheon meat. So it's like really firm and this weird pink color, very like fake looking. But basically, it's like a canned pork product, and it, it's made with like all different types of the pig, not just like a specific part. It's like spongy. It's like a chicken nugget in the sense where like when you're eating it, you're not like, oh, I'm eating chicken. And it's like really salty. There's really not that much flavor beyond that. It was founded by Hormel Foods, which is like based in Minnesota or something. So it's like very much an American thing. But Spam is like extremely popular around the world, specifically in East Asia and also Hawaii. When I was in middle school, we were doing a lesson on World War II and my teacher brought up Spam and like no one in my class except me knew what Spam was. Like they had never really? heard of it. Yeah, let alone tried wow. it. And like that was really bizarre to me because I grew up eating spam, not like frequently. It was actually like a treat when we ate spam because it's like very high in sodium. So it doesn't offer much nutritional value. The way people generally react to like spam or like canned meat products is always with distaste, I would say, where it's like a lot of people eat and like these foods, but like there's like a perception around them of being unhealthy and like extremely processed and like cheap. And so people who hate on spam 
should probably reevaluate why. Is spam popular in Japan or like how popular is it? You can buy it at foreign markets here or like Costco, I guess, but otherwise it's pretty hard to find. BTS did an episode of Run BTS a couple weeks ago with Baek Jong Wong. <laughs> yeah, I know who you're talking about, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's like a restaurant chain and he did this episode of Run BTS to promote his canned ham or something. The reason they were cooking with it was because they were trying to support pig farmers during the pandemic and so they were like oh we should eat the other parts of the pig not just the ones that are popular in stores like we should also eat this canned product because it has all the other bits that <laughs> like aren't sold yeah spam is environmentally friendly <laughs> i have i have no idea if that's true don't quote me on that please <laughs> i'm a vegan so i don't eat animal products except spam <laughs> i don't know who you're talking about <laughs> Maybe spam isn't as popular in Japan as it is in other countries in Asia, but spam in Korea is a very big deal. Like people love spam in Korea. And like so many foods and food fusion, whatever you want to call it, the history of it is probably less than ideal. But spam became like widely consumed in Korea during the Korean War. After the Korean War, when like all the US troops left, they like left behind stuff, one of which was spam. My grandparents actually have memories, I don't know about spam specifically, but like of consuming and purchasing like old US military rations. Because like all those products are like canned or like crackers, and so like they can exist for a long time. I think that's how like spam entered Korea. And then from there, kind of like blew up. One of my favorite Korean dishes is called pudejjigae. The literal translation is like army stew. And it's like if you took kimchi jjigae, which is like a stew made with kimchi, and like put in like cut up hot dogs and spam and ramen packets. The idea behind it was like you kind of just like throw whatever you want in it. There's really not like a set formula for it beyond it's a hodgepodge of whatever you want it to be i was reading this like npr thing about the history of spam in korea and like people like will give gifts of spam like gift boxes but yeah people love spam i love spam i grew up eating it on occasion just like fried and then eaten with like rice and an egg that's like a really good iconic meal yeah spam musubi is good is it also true that korean chicken comes from the u.s military presence in korea yeah i think korean fried chicken is usually like double fried where they'll like fry it once and they'll fry it again to make it like extra crispy they use like korean sauces for like a korean palate so like in the u.s fried chicken might come with like buffalo sauce but obviously in korea like the sauces that are popular are more like soy based or like spicy since that's what people like but the way that fried chicken became a food in korea was through military troops black soldiers would make fried chicken and then korean people also learned to make fried chicken and like made it their own so another example of food traveling throughout the world in very expected ways i hate to say it but we (laughs) We live in like a globalized world. We have been for like centuries, you know, ever since we figured out how to make boats go really far. (laughs) The reason I bring up spam is because it's, in my mind at least, a great example of how different cultures interpret like the same piece of food, where a product that has one reputation or is treated one way has such a different meaning and like being reinvented basically 
And I think a lot of like fusion food is just that. People take food and then make it their own. However it came to be, like it's inevitable that with boats and like globalization and just like the interconnectedness of (laughs) of the world, there's going to be like that cultural exchange. And so that in and of itself may be neutral. It might not be. It might be more like insidious. But it's going to happen. And I think what's interesting in recent years for me, at least, is seeing like how that discourse plays out in America as it relates to like Asian food and like Asian fusion food and like how my fellow Asian Americans react and feel about said fusion food. So does fusion food mean like one culture taking food from another culture and making it their own? Or does it mean a 50-50 mix of two different cultures? I don't think that it has to be like a 50-50 split. Fusion to describe food was borrowed from jazz fusion, where it's like you're blending like different genres of music with jazz. Fusion, I think very broadly just means the mixing of food from different cultures. And while this term was officially coined in the 1980s, like if you just look at history, fusion food has existed way before that. What about like food that is from one culture but then is like appropriated or like assimilated into another culture so as to fit the taste of the majority of the people who live there like does chinese food in japan does that count as fusion food or is that just chinese food because in japan it's like called chinese food but it's obviously very different from chinese food in china Korean people do the same thing where there's like Korean Chinese food, which has its roots in like Chinese food, but has been tailored to suit the palate of the local population. Yeah, I guess from like a purely like definition point of view, like you could probably classify that as fusion since it's not like strictly Japanese food or like strictly Chinese food. There's like influences from both cultures to create this entirely new thing. I don't think people would describe Korean fried chicken as fusion, but at the end of the day, like that's basically what it is, where it's like different cultures mixing and coming together. Can I just say that in terms of Chinese food in Japan, dandamian in China is a dry noodle with meat and spices mixed together. But in Japan, they call it tantamen. So Japanese people eat it as a ramen with broth. It's more like a spicy ramen. It doesn't really taste anything like traditional Chinese dandamian, but the problem is that dandamian is much better. (laughs) And Japanese people think they're both the same. And I have some Chinese friends here, and I've asked all of them if there is any place where I can get dandamian, and they're all like, no, they only have the ramen version. There's literally nowhere in Tokyo that has dandamian. It's always the soup-based version, which is devastating. Yeah, I feel like those are types of foods where Yes, they could be defined as fusion, but like we don't think of them as fusion. One example is like kimchi, which is like a fermented cabbage dish (laughs) that's very popular in Korea. There's like a lot of different types, but the like most common type is just like the regular Napa cabbage kind where it's like spicy. And one of my favorite fun facts, and this is very indicative of who I am as a person, is spicy like kimchi and like the way we think of kimchi as it is now only came into existence in like the 16 to 1700s. Before that, red peppers were not a food in Korea. Like it's not a plant native to Korea. And so like right. when they made kimchi, that it wasn't an ingredient. And so it wasn't until like the 1600s when 
the Portuguese started trading with Japan, that peppers were like introduced to Asia from the quote unquote new world. I don't know that the Koreans directly traded with the Portuguese, but that's basically kind of like how it ended up in Korea. And then people started using it to make kimchi. And it wasn't until the 1700s that it was like officially documented in a cookbook. Obviously, after 300 years, you could consider it like a staple ingredient. But I think it just goes to show that like even what we conceive as like really authentic or like really native to a specific culture isn't necessarily even true. And it's like only through like trade and introducing new ingredients from like other parts of the world that like we end up getting these types of foods. Do you know about the Japan-Korea kimchi beef that's still ongoing? No, what is that? Well, Japan sells kimchi, but, and this is the kimchi that I was raised on, but it's fucking gross. The kimchi they sell in Japanese supermarkets is a very sweet version because Japanese people can't handle spicy food. There is a trade dispute regarding the definition. Korea has told Japan that Japan should not legally be allowed to call it kimchi because it's so different from real Korean kimchi. If Japan labels their spiced vegetable product as, quote, kimchi, (laughs) then there is less of a market for imports of kimchi. So if they call it something else, then Japanese people will be like, oh, well, I want to eat kimchi, so I'll have to eat the South Korean version. So there's actual stakes to this. It's a pickle. Why are we fighting about a pickle? Yeah, pickle pickles. In Japan, it's very famous that there's Portuguese influence on Japanese food. I think the most famous one is kastera, this like pound cake dessert thing. The word kastera comes from a a Portuguese word. I learned recently that tempura also has its roots in Portuguese food. The origin of tempura in Japan is debated, but most people think that it comes from a Portuguese cuisine where they will fry vegetables in oil with like wheat flour. And they brought that over to Japan in like the 1600s. And then Japan took that and made it into their own and what is now called tempura. I don't know why it became so popular in Japan if the Portuguese used wheat flour because Japan doesn't have a lot of wheat flour to begin with. Like wheat is not something that we produce a lot of. So maybe we use like rice flour or something. I thought that was strange because I know that wheat is not common in Japan because we didn't used to have bread in Japan until the Americans during the occupation in like the 50s made us buy wheat flour from America so that Japanese kids in schools would eat bread in their lunches. That's where bread became a staple of Japanese school lunches at the same time that milk did. It was like a tactic by General MacArthur to make Japan buy American products so that American farmers can make money. But that's why to this day Japanese kids will drink milk in their school lunches. It's like really strange when you think about it because who eats rice with milk? But it it comes from US imperialism. America has, to this day, has like a propaganda campaign related to its milk consumption. So in every single school cafeteria I was in, there would always be like those got milk posters with the celebrities with like those fake milk mustaches. When I was a kid, I was like, wait, so they're supposed to be promoting what exactly? Because it's just like (laughs) the thing that's selling isn't like a brand or anything. It's just like milk as a concept, (laughs) which I thought was really weird. Got milk didn't start until the early like 19th. 90s but when we think about like a healthy balanced diet like milk and dairy is like very central to it 
And I read that part of the reason why is because after World War II, there was like a huge surplus of dairy products. Wow. <laughs> and so obviously the government couldn't let all these dairy farmers go bankrupt. So, <laughs> so they sold it to Japan. <laughs> Not just Japan, but like the American people too. And like everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Milk is really gross. Yeah. And like there's this whole idea that like milk makes you strong, healthy bones. It's all fake. But yeah, at the same time that General MacArthur was selling milk to Japan, the US government was also selling milk to its own people. <laughs> Big dairy. It's dangerous. Big dairy is real. Yeah, I guess to wrap up our little discussion about like fusion, long story short, the concept of fusion has existed for a lot longer than we might expect it to. And like, it makes sense when you think about it, like people move or like new products get introduced. But like, I guess why I want to talk about fusion was to talk about kind of the controversies around fusion food. Because if it's this thing that exists and has existed, why is it such a big deal in today's culture? I think there's like a few different aspects to it. I think the main one is like the idea that it takes away from the authenticity of the original food. Mm. A lot of times I think there's this perception that like the people who are making Asian fusion food are like white and they're doing it because they need to create Asian food in a way that is palatable to like white people or like through the lens of like a white chef. And I think that is true. Like I think that definitely does exist. But going back to like the pure definition of it, like it's not a new concept that different cultures take each other's food and make it their own. I think one thing I want to say is that at least for me personally, when I hear the phrase fusion food initially my first thought always turns to up-and-coming restaurants in cities and people mixing different cuisines together my first thought is always like high-end western cuisine like french cuisine mixed with japanese korean type food which is obviously like a very limited view of fusion food in itself I think writing is really powerful right and the people who get to define what food is are the people who get to talk about it and many people who have had a part in developing, I guess what we would call fusion food or like new types of cooking, especially from people from marginalized communities often don't have the same kinds of access to communicating broadly in the way that people in power do. So you end up with some cuisines being seen as like exotic or unpopular or in the minority globally when the reality is just that some people have the power of writing and spreading discourse so you get cookbooks that are written by certain types of people and they're the ones that are popularized whereas since cooking is something that has to be experienced in the moment it's much harder to pass down a lot of types of cooking are ones that are passed down within families or like within communities the reason why we think of some cuisines as being rare or unique is because they just haven't had the same kinds of access like if people from these marginalized communities were writing as much as french people were then we would probably live in a very different food world than we do now i feel like there are two types of asian fusion there's like asian food mixed with like western food and then there's like asian fusion when it's like basically like more like pan asian where it's like all these asian <laughs> flavors that come together to make asian fusion when it's really just like cherry picking like different ingredients from different food groups. But how do you feel about Asian fusion, having both lived in America at various points in your life? I went to college in 
the UK. And whenever I would crave Japanese food, I would just end up eating Chinese or Korean food because there are like five Japanese people living in London total and none of them cook apparently. So there are a couple of Japanese restaurants, but they're all more of the pan-Asian variety that you speak of, which I don't know. For Japanese food, I feel like it really doesn't work because some cuisines work better together than others do. And I find that Japanese food in particular is kind of hard to pull off in fusion cuisine. A lot of Japanese food abroad tends to be like sushi based, which like, I don't know, sushi is fine, but like it requires a lot of precision. And if you're making actually good restaurant quality su sushi, it takes someone with a lot of training to do and you, it's not really something that other people from other countries can just like easily pull off without the requisite training. But the problem is that I find a lot of Japanese restaurants abroad tend to focus on sushi and so like at the expense of maybe making other Japanese food that's easier or like to me more palatable. And sushi is especially hard because it requires you to have fresh food fish, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't live in a port city, it's like impossible to make good, authentic sushi. If I was eating Japanese food in other countries, I would probably just end up eating like a box meal, unless you're planning on spending $300 at a really upscale sushi place. Like I wouldn't find it worth it to bother. <laughs> I would usually just eat Chinese food or Korean food if I was craving Japanese. I was like, it's close ish so. <laughs> that sounds racist <laughs> listen all asian people are the same you heard it here first <laughs> oh no on the topic of sushi how do you feel about very american sushi the california roll california roll is like an example but then like a lot of japanese restaurants in america will do like have you ever heard of like a dragon roll no what, what is that Oh, oh, where it's all like stacked up and they have the sauce on it and they're like really big rolls. Like you could eat one and that's like a meal. And there's like all different types, but I'm betting that none of them can be found in Japan. I guess the reason I bring this up is because I wanted to be like, are you offended by this? <laughs> oh, no. But the answer is no. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I haven't really had it, but I'm not like offended by it. Because I feel like this is an example where it might not be called fusion, like it would still be like passed off as like Japanese food or like sushi, but it's like very clearly not. And so there'd be like a group of people that turn their nose up at it because it's not authentic. I'm not offended by it, but this is not what I picture when I picture sushi, you know? Yeah. But yeah, this isn't, um, it's not offensive to me. You can eat whatever you want. <laughs> And the episode is over. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted that for like shock value. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to goad us into creating yeah. a controversy. I went to college in New York and there is Japanese food there. Like there are Japanese restaurants, but it's more, I think in recent years, it's more that Japanese chains will go to New York and open up stores there, right? Oh, there's like there, Yoshinoya right? now. Yeah, there's Yoshinoya, there's like Ippudo for ramen. Ichiran is also there too. The thing with Ichiran in New York is that some people, like, ask to open the barriers up because they don't. <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny. Wait, so, like, Ichiran is this ramen chain in Japan, and the supposed appeal of Ichiran is that you can eat in a closed booth. So, instead of having, like, tables or, like, a long row, you're in a contained space. There's a little 
pull down shade in front of you and you order with a vending machine and you only communicate through like past notes with the servers so the whole point is to have like a solitary dining experience and to just experience the flavor of the ramen without outside interference but the patrons at the New York outpost complained because they said that they couldn't talk to their friends while they were eating so now in the New York one they have like a section where you can eat alone but then they also have like communal eating wow. dining areas which kills the whole point because then you can still hear people talking while you're eating <laughs> that's so <laughs> funny really funny a bowl of ramen can cost up to like 15 20 dollars in the states where as in japan ramen is not supposed to be this expensive dish and also what i found strange was there is an otoya in New York, and otoya is also another one of those chain restaurants where it's like relatively cheap food that you can get, and it's like a full set. So it's like rice, miso soup, and then you have like fish or meat. But in New York, it was this whole expensive dining experience, so <laughs> the food there was like $30. I felt really scammed because I know what otoya is supposed to be. <laughs> So I, yeah, I never went to go eat at any restaurants and mostly because the food in New York is so expensive and I know that it's not supposed to be that expensive. But I think also the idea of Japanese ramen in New York as like a fusion food is also interesting because ramen in and of itself is like fusion food in Japan. Like it came from China. Like another word for ramen is chukasoba, which means Chinese soba. I think it's interesting that it goes over then to New York and then some like white chefs are then making fusion food out of fusion food. My feelings regarding the price for ramen, I don't like that it's so expensive abroad, but I think the price is justified because ramen is actually like a very intensive process and the reason why it's so cheap here is because the ingredients and like the way of making ramen is very accessible, whereas I'm sure if you're abroad you have to build that restaurant from scratch and they have to teach people how to make ramen. And so it's like a whole thing, which is why there's a price hike. I mean, the ramen restaurants in London are like very fancy. Like you have to go out to eat ramen, which is weird to me. <laughs> I don't think I've ever gone out for ramen with anyone in Japan because that meal would last 90 seconds. <laughs> You just sit, like, next to each other, not facing each other. Yeah, but in London, like, the ramen restaurants all have proper seating, and so you have to make a meal out of it. But the ramen cools so fast, and the noodles get all soggy. I'm like, just eat it and leave. Like, the food's gonna get gross. Ramen was so stressful for me in Japan, though, because you have to, like, press the buttons, and that requires you knowing what each button says. Yeah, it's not very accessible. Yeah, if you can't read kanji... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's fine. It's my own fault for being a foreigner. <laughs> There's a restaurant that I won't name, but you can probably very easily Google in the States that is now famous for making tamago sando, which is egg salad sandwich in Japan. And it's very expensive. And I'm not saying you can't make common foods and bring them abroad and sell them at a restaurant, but the amount of money these sandwiches cost when they're so easy to make at home there's no like special ingredient to like it's literally just like sugar and mayo and eggs and they cost like six dollars yeah i guess that kind of falls into the idea of like all foreign food being cool or trendy or tasty solely because they're 
foreign so they're like exotic like an egg sandwich is not exotic but like oh like a Japanese egg sandwich there was like a time in America it might still be ongoing when like katsuzandos were like also very popular oh yeah I think there's like a perception that like a lot of foods that are foreign even if they are very basic are like elevated or special even if that's not the case it's just infuriating because it takes so little skill to make like if it were curry or something from a different country then obviously I would be happy to pay a premium and like go seek out this certain restaurant but I don't know I I really could just make an egg sandwich at home (laughs) wait let me check the price um their egg salad sandwich is ten dollars damn ten dollars ten dollars that's a lot I said six like exaggerating six but that my god i've seen videos of them on youtube and like their sandwiches don't even look very good but if you look at their instagram everything they make is so basic there's a layered omelet sandwich which i'm guessing is just tamagoyaki i hate that stuff sorry why is it sweet you don't have to make it sweet i think it's gross when it's sweet too i just make it without the sugar yeah my mom makes it without but like when you go to like a sushi place and they have the it's so sweet i can't handle it no you're you're correct it is gross (laughs) I don't think we talk nearly enough about how, like, Japan butchers other countries' foods. (laughs) Yeah. Like, people always talk about how foreigners butcher Japanese food, but I'm like, the big controversy here is more (laughs) that we have, like, Moss Burger, which is fucking disgusting. (laughs) In the same way that, like, foreigners don't understand how Japanese food relies on more subtle light flavors, Japanese people don't understand how to cook foods that have more flavor. (laughs) Like, they don't understand how spice works, so they can't make anything like Chinese food. They can't make Korean food. They can't make Mexican food. They can't make burgers. There's no, like, Japanese-originated burger that tastes decent. Oh. Well, two things. I guess before we move on from the topic of fusion, I think it is important to recognize, as we have already, that even though fusion food exists and has existed, in America at least, it did originate in part because Asian immigrants had to like actively change the way they cook to appeal to white people and like that's unfortunate that like one of the best ways to survive or like main ways to survive is not to produce your food as it was intended to be made but having to filter it and modify it to suit a different audience so you could consider that like a negative but at the same time I think like a lot of fusion food is perfectly fine because it comes up naturally at least in america every family's experience will be slightly different priya krishna who is like a food writer for bon appetit and the new york times she talks about how her family has come up with like random indian foods where it's like not really something you'd find in india and the reason it was created was like her mom was making an indian dish using the ingredients that like she had access to So I think that's another type of fusion where it's people making food based on the ingredients they have available. And so it might not be exactly how they would have prepared it, but you make do with what you have. My family has made fusion food, I guess. Oh, like what? One time my mom made like burger. I wouldn't call them burgers. They're like beef patties, but she like used like a very Korean like seasonings. So it tasted kind of like prugogi in the sense that it's like soy sauce and like slightly sweet and like if you just like made those little patties you could eat them with rice and like that's a totally fine dish but like we put them in bread to eat as like a sandwich and so it's like kind of a hamburger but it's not you just reinvented the bulgogi bake yeah 
which is uh costco chicken bake with prugogi in it but yeah like that's an example of like i don't know <laughs> my family just made this like really random thing because like we thought it would taste good and like it's not like a big political statement or like a thing that's like offensive but yeah so like there's fusion food which is you know the hybrid of two different types of food <laughs> so if like that's fusion then i think the natural question is like what's the opposite or like if fusion bad then like what's good and I think <laughs> this is where authenticity comes into play and it's like another case where it's like what does this word mean like how are we defining it and how is our definition of this word impacting like how we conceive food or like how we judge food I recognize you can say that about like any word but I think when it comes to food like authenticity is like such a big thing how do we even go about defining what is authentic and like is something being authentic make it better than being fusion if I were to ask you like hey I want Japanese food can you recommend me a place that's really authentic how would you go about deciding like what to recommend me well if i were to recommend someone a japanese restaurant in america i would look at the name of the restaurant and then go from there because the ones that are fake all have tokyo or sakura some variation of those words in their name and the ones that are real usually have names that are unfamiliar to people who don't speak japanese so I feel like given no other information, that alone is a good indicator of whether a restaurant is authentic or not. So then within the subset of restaurants that don't have any of those words in their name, are all of them authentic? Maybe like go by the chef or like who is cooking or making the food. Maybe if it's like a smaller place and it's run by like an old couple or something, <laughs> then maybe I would recommend it. One thing I really struggled with was like, how do I define like authentic Korean food? I think for certain types of people who are unfamiliar with another culture's food, the way they determine whether it's authentic or not is based on indicators like how polite the waitstaff are to you or like where is the restaurant located? How are the prices? You know, like are there typos on the menu? Like all these like different ways of like parsing out whether a place is authentic or not. And I feel like a lot of them are kind of like bogus. I don't know. When I was doing my research, this one Eater article was talking about how the notion of authenticity is like equally influenced by whiteness because a lot of times it's white people going around deeming what's real. It's using Mexican food as an example, but it says when it comes to like authenticity, that's based upon like a preconceived notion of what real Mexican food is, regardless of what relationship the diner has to Mexican cuisine in the first place. Yelp reviewers associated authenticity with white tablecloths, elegance, and an overall positive dining experience. However, authenticity at non-European restaurants more often meant cheap food, dirty decor, and harried service. White people were allowed to be both authentic and upscale, while cuisine from people of color had to stay cheap and lowbrow to qualify, end quote. I think a lot of the time, authenticity has been co-opted in a way where it's not just used to describe food that is made by the person from that culture, it's like, oh, the authentic Chinese place is the hole in the wall with the bad health rating. Mm. And so it can simultaneously like reinforce certain like stereotypes or like it just adds kind of like this additional hurdle for what classifies good 
Asian food. There's that BuzzFeed video where there's like these Chinese grandparents and these Chinese American millennials who eat Panda Express and review them. And the older people were like, oh, this food is good. And the youths were more like, oh, this is so gross. It's nothing like authentic or whatever. But Panda Express is like Chinese American food. It's not meant to be, quote, Chinese food anyway. And the notion of there being an authentic Chinese food is already super fraught because uh, in case we all forgot, like China is a very large country with a lot of different people and they don't all eat one unified Chinese food anyways. And what we consider to be Chinese food is already extremely varied from region to region or even within family to family. So to just single out Panda Express as being fake isn't really a useful framework to have this conversation in. But I think that video goes to show like how food is another arena for identity politics to play out where Panda Express is like an affront to Asian culture and it's a microaggression because it's taking this Chinese food and making it for like white people. I don't think Panda Express ever tried to market itself as authentic Chinese food. Right. And I feel like it's somewhat disingenuous to criticize something against a standard that they don't even claim to. There's also like Peruvian Chinese food. Chinese migrants who settled in Peru started opening restaurants and like Peruvian Chinese food came about. So like a lot of like soy sauce and like stir fried kind of dishes. But yeah, I think it's important to note that like fusion isn't always Asian or a non-white food or culture mixed with like French techniques or whatever. It can be Korean taco. In terms of fusion cuisine in the States, a lot of more recently popular cuisines like you know Roy Choi's his food is like Korean Mexican fusion but I've read that a lot of fusion food is connected with you know having solidarity with other minority communities so instead of just trying to make like French cuisine fusion with whatever ethnic minority like food you're making it's um a lot of the fusion cuisine in America is more connected to whatever local identification you have with people who are probably in a lower socioeconomic class as you like it's not just cosmopolitan like wealthy uh, like upper middle class folk making expensive egg sandwiches from Japan like a lot of fusion food culture is now like food truck culture and making food accessible to people through other venues as opposed to just high-end restaurants but Roy Choi was also educated at I think he's from CIA we should clarify that's the Culinary Institute of America. Yeah, not the Central not the Intelligence Central Agency. Intelligence Agency. He, but he was still educated at one of the big American culinary schools. And they still very much gravitate toward French techniques of cooking. You see this in all media, but the standards are still very situated in a certain way of, you know, like knife skills are very specific to the kind of food standard that's being upheld which is based on French cuisine and because of that these like quote ethnic types of cuisines are and techniques are often like a side note and even now in their curriculum they spend 90% of their time focusing on French culinary techniques and they have like a bit of time for Asian food but that is always relegated to other stuff but 
these institutions are where all of the influential chefs in America are coming out of and they're just recreating these techniques and all the different kinds of food they make. So because there is still no infrastructure for learning these different techniques unless you're coming directly out of apprenticeship at a restaurant or something institutionally it's still very western very white even in fusion food that's the reason why when we think fusion food a lot of times we still turn to western mixed with something other as opposed to like we see more french japanese than kogi type foods with authenticity specifically it really is so meaningless because it's very difficult to define and say you can come up with the definition of authentic that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to taste better if you went to korea and ate at a korean restaurant made by korean people everything is in korean yes that's authentic because you're in korea but the food could still taste really bad (laughs) authenticity is like currency of sorts of like how valuable or how like tasty a food is and yeah that's often true but being authentic in and of itself does not mean it tastes good it could be authentically bad (laughs) i feel like in my mind the more useful distinction is traditional versus non-traditional there are like a couple like very prominent asian and asian american chefs who like have really upscale restaurants who like have michelin stars and like it's very fancy very expensive in la there's en naka which is nikki nakayama the menu is like her like modern interpretation of like kaiseki i think so correct me if i'm wrong but like kaiseki is like a course meal but like each course has like different rules and like certain dishes have to follow other dishes and it's very much like a composed experience even though within the meal like there can be different dishes but like there are like thematic elements that make it kaiseki instead of something else but she's japanese american like she is making japanese food but with a twist with the flair but like i don't know that you'd call it fusion i feel like we reserve fusion for white people who are making asian food you know like that's not the case all the time but i feel like when you say fusion and you mean it in like a negative connotation you're probably imagining like some white hipster bro who is like opening a trendy new shop in like a gentrified neighborhood and that's why it's bad a better descriptor would be traditional versus modern and you know modern could mean incorporating like different types of ingredients or like different types of techniques but the point being like it's not exactly like how it would be prepared in its original form but i think that's a more useful way of discussing food as opposed to using like authenticity as like a proxy for tasty i was reminded of um sola Alwali. I read an article where she was talking about how she and her husband started a restaurant, but it was very like traditionally American, like it had burgers and things like that. And the restaurant just didn't take off, so they closed it. But I think part of what she attributed to it not being successful was this expectation that she make more like ethnic food because she's Bengali American and people were confused by the fact that she's making like hamburgers instead even though she's American and was raised in America and all that. So I agree that those superficial factors of what we perceive to be what defines a restaurant or their food are obviously not necessarily the most helpful. Yeah I feel like major disclaimer if I haven't made it clear enough food politics in America as it relates to the immigrant experience and whatnot it it is like very contentious and it's like very personal for like a lot of people and there's like a lot of racism involved in how we like 
value food and like how we categorize food and so I don't want to give the impression that like it's like a cut and dry topic where people are just overreacting and fusion has existed forever so like what's the big deal I definitely don't think that's the case I think the big issue for me with the most prevalent food discourse that I come across of like fusion versus authentic is that it's really basic and I feel like when we reduce food discourse to simply like is panda express authentic or like how do chinese people react to panda express it like prevents us from having other conversations that are not necessarily more critical but like examine not just the food itself but like the food industry from perspectives that we might not have historically and i think one very discussed thing this past year and like last year was the intersection of like food and race and politics not just in the sense of like, is this food authentic, but how people operate within the like food industry. Bon Appetit kind of blew up once they revealed the fact that some of their key individuals had been racist in the past and they were treating the white food editors much better than they were treating the like non-white counterparts in terms of like compensation and also elevating like they would elevate certain types of recipes so the ones that were promoted were the ones that were geared toward whiter audiences i feel like those are important conversations to have that i think it's easy to overlook when you're so focused on the food itself and i think it's important to look at like the creator of a food or like the owner of a restaurant and like how those individuals operate and exist in society and if you want to make the argument that like how people react or how people treat asian food is racist then or problematic you also have to like acknowledge the fact that like people who work in the food industry regardless of ethnicity or background can also act in harmful ways and like asians are not immune to that unfortunately and i think the very surface level discussion of like fusion food and like authenticity is very similar to representation politics in media where not all representation is like good representation and with food we have been quick to jump on a train to support people who ended up being not the greatest I mean, I hate David Chang, but I th- I just think it is important to at least mention him because just because of how prominent he is. Up until really recently, like David Chang was the name for popular consumption of fusion food in America, particularly Asian food. So it's really hard to have a conversation without thinking about him because his presence is like a part of so many of these different conversations. There's a very small handful of celebrity chefs who could be widely recognized by the American public. And like David Chang has now become one of them, which is kind of a shame because he is so prominent that you can't really talk about food in America without thinking about his impact and how the past year of media coverage about him and his long history of being just terrible and abusive has affected the way we think about food in America these days. There are more voices every day, but like he's still one of the most prominent and seems to still be doing fine. So the problem with David Chang is that his meteoric rise seems kind of entangled with this persona of being terrible to people. Obviously, you can be successful without 
being awful, but he is one of those figures where his reputation for being shitty to his employees and treating people very badly was part of his drive to be very successful and propel Momofuku to the public consciousness. So it's just very hard to have a conversation without considering that because I think his impact has been so huge that it's not possible to just ignore it. Yeah, unsurprisingly, the food industry, like many other industries, is terrible. Didn't he want to create a restaurant that serves food that chefs wanted to eat, but at the same time, he failed to create a working environment where chefs wanted to work at? So (laughs) where does that disconnect? (laughs) Like, you can do both. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think like other creative pursuits it's very much like oh all this suffering is worth it because the end product is just so incredible and like you see that in like film and television and where it's like it's the product of genius so it's okay if you get yelled at and work 14 hour days and are exploited and abused by like a single authority figure i was watching a bit of his show ugly delicious this week and as someone who hasn't seen a lot of his shows before i was just surprised that he is so prominent and his outsized impact on culture given how how obvious it is that he's like just a very dismissive irritable person to the extent that you can see it on camera you know because these shows are obviously heavily edited so the editing bit is to cut out the parts where he does shitty things or looks bad but he still manages to come off kind of terrible on camera. That's kind of his persona, right? That led him to become this really recognized chef. And so, yeah, I did see that in there. Like, they kept a lot of things in there that I was like, shouldn't you have cut this out? (laughs) 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 I think that's what's surprising to me because, I mean, I read Kitchen Confidential a couple months ago by Anthony Bourdain. And in the book, especially, he comes off really terribly and he said publicly that he's like regretted the way he's kind of glamorized this life of abuse that occurs in kitchens and there is this idea that he espouses in the book where he talks about oh it's like you have to suffer to be successful in this industry and part of the joy of being a chef is having to experience all these ups and downs while you're working but also the camaraderie you experience and like being successful and producing great work. But Anthony Bourdain is also known for similarly going around the world and traveling and like experiencing other foods and other cultures. And the reason why he was so popular was because his attitude toward other people was so different from his persona in the kitchen. Like he was empathetic and warm and understanding and really tried to understand what was going on with people's lives even as or especially like as a white dude. So seeing that contrast with David Chang's content was a little weird to see, I guess. I was watching the pizza episode and you know when he goes on the Domino's pizza delivery? Yeah. He did one trip and he was like, oh, I'm not doing this shit again. But the delivery guy was like right next to him. And I was like, wait, this is his job. Like, you can't say that. Boba guys, let's talk about Boba guys real quick. I guess the like introduction to this conversation kind of goes back to like what we already discussed. So I think it's important to take a step back and ask ourselves, what is Boba? Well, culturally, what is Boba? Boba originated in Taiwan. 
basically milk tea or boba is a drink usually made with milk or tea and there are like these pearls in it made out of tapioca and they're chewy and sweet and you drink the tea and you chew the tapioca balls and then it's a wonderful time. (laughs) Do you know why it was originated in Taiwan? Oh, (laughs) the tapioca pearls that make bubble tea so unique were originally made from the starch of the cassava, a tropical shrub known for its starchy roots, which was introduced to Taiwan from South America during Japanese colonial rule. Wow. Of course it was. (laughs) We have Japan to thank for so many iconic Asian foods. Oh my god. So embarrassing. But yeah, so boba is a ridiculously popular drink, not just in Taiwan, but like throughout Asia and the world. But the New York Times posted this article about boba and like the hype around boba and the article received a lot of backlash first because the title was the blobs in your tea they're supposed to be there oh Oh, i know this article yeah i I remember this (laughs) and so like people on twitter and on the they were so mad about this and so they had to change the article title and apologize and pretend that you know whatever like, I feel like people were using this incident as, again, indicative of, like, how white culture is so racist and white people are so racist. And, like, yes, that's all true. I don't want to diminish people's feelings or reactions, but, like, was it really that big of a deal? Personally, I don't think so. They've mentioned this on Reply All once, but there's a theory that the New York Times, in the same way that they publish op-eds to goad people into having a reaction and getting mad on Twitter or whatever, their food and style sections also kind of do the same thing where they'll just come up with a new food thing to get people pissed off. I'm not saying that the boba piece was that, but it does fall in line with a long tradition of setting people off by writing pieces about food. I feel like the intent was to be not inflammatory, but like somewhat provocative. I think in the grand scheme of things, like I think it's more haha, the New York Times is so out of touch as opposed to like, you know, the New York Times having like a coordinated agenda against Asian people and like minimizing Asian food or like claiming to discover it. What is the impact of the New York Times calling boba like a blob in your tea and treating it as this like newfangled thing when it's existed for a long time? Like, what does that do? Boba is like a really popular drink. It's very much like a part of Asian American identity. And so boba is a big deal in the sense that like we get upset when the New York Times pretends to discover it, but we don't have that same level of like scrutiny or anger towards boba in other regards boba guys which is like a very popular chain of boba stores but last year people started to write more and talk more about how the owners or like the founders of boba guys there were like allegations of like racial discrimination and sexual harassment and like they've had to let people go because of like racist things that they've said and i just think it's interesting to see people get so up in arms about like a new york times headline but not about how this really popular company is enabling racist behavior and like sexual harassment in certain stores. The whole Asian diaspora being associated with boba thing that I feel like a lot of representation minded folk really lean into is to me very basic and boring. It feels in line with representation discourse to talk about boba as like a something associated with your identity in a way that is 
more transgressive than other foods. But anyway. I'm looking at a menu that has Yang 2020 on the bottom for Boba Guy. Oh, gross. In November 2019, they had a drink called Humanity First, and it was like a red, white, and blue drink. What? That's so weird. Also, like, the name Humanity First is inherently opposed to anything related to America, so. Yeah, it's like not left, not right, but boba, and it's like, what? American society what? is so polarized politically, but we're all. Oh my one. god. We all put humanity first. Um, <laughs> here's our red, white, and blue boba drink. People were obviously talking a lot about the quote-unquote boba guys controversies, but nothing happened from that like at the end of the day like from what i could tell there was like no change like what came of that because like that's an instance where that was impacting people in like a real and negative way and like it's unclear like how that was ever resolved or like what the recourse was the thing that i've noticed a lot lately being on twitter and like online is that like a lot of the discourse feels really one-dimensional and i feel like that is a disservice to everyone we tend to focus on the wrong things much like how we focus very much on like one or two like food items and kind of ignore everything else and i feel like in doing so you miss out on so much but there's a lot of food out there there's like a lot of good food so parting words would be you know go try it (laughs) what's one food you think other people should try Oh, Japanese curry, but not the stuff that comes out of the package. I feel like it exists in some restaurants, but if you're buying Japanese curry at a restaurant that doesn't specialize in Japanese curry, chances are it's from a box, so it probably doesn't taste very good. It's easy to make at home, so you should just do that or come to Japan and actually try some Japanese curry. It's more like a stew. It's not very similar to like Indian or Thai curry, which is more soupy, but you eat Japanese curry with rice or... You can get it in pastries and it's delicious. I want a curry bread so much. Yeah, go eat something new. If you're vaccinated, go eat in a restaurant. Support local businesses. But yeah, go eat some good food. Whether it's fusion or traditional, authentic, modern, whatever it is. Just eat something tasty. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) 